Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Ange Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today, we're going to start by talking about Berkshire's annual meeting, and then we'll go to an absolutely sensational story in the Wall Street Journal titled, How a Hedge Fund Ace Chased Silicon Valley Riches and Embarrassed Himself. Uh, so, Chris, let's start with Berkshire. Their annual meeting was this weekend. I am sure we will be getting a couple Berkshire podcasts uh, in this month because next week, 13Fs come out, so we'll probably do our quarterly Berkshire 13F uh podcast but why don't we just start you know annual meeting this week uh what were your takeaways from the big day i didn't go uh but i listened to basically the whole thing remotely uh some at home some at the work but uh listened to it my my young daughter came in and i said i'm listening to two very rich very wise very old men (laughs) and she looked at me and she said yeah daddy i can tell when you're old by how you look and how you sound and so she was on top of the oldness um i thought it was wonderful um i would say i was more cheered and inspired that educated only relative to things I've heard them say before. But, um, you know, Buffett's such an optimist and a patriot, and I think he really uses his meeting to showcase what he thinks that's great about America. First and foremost, Berkshire itself. Uh, And when you go and you see the the scenes outside the auditorium, really is a celebration. Uh, But also Jack Bogle, Google, Amazon, things that aren't his creations, but things that he wants to lift up as saying this is in this rarefied group of my peers or people who've just done great things in certain dimensions. Yeah, so I I think my favorite part was when he uh, pointed to Jack Bogle and he was like, Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, kind of the father of the modern day index fund. He was like, Jack, he's probably been the uh, the best friend to the average investor in, in history or something like that. And he goes, Jack, you're 88 years old, only two more years and you'll be eligible for an executive position at Berkshire. I thought that was a very funny joke. Uh, But yeah, look, at this point, I I don't even watch them. I just kind of catch the highlights because, uh, you know, they all start to blend together. I thought the the two most interesting things to me that were kind of new was, uh, A, you know, he was really lavishing on the praise for Apple, Google, and Mm -hmm. Amazon. And now we've heard him, you know, we've heard Charlie Munger in the past say uh, Google's got the widest moat he's ever seen. We've heard them talk about saying Jeff Bezos' praises, but I mean, they were really lavishing the praises onto them. And uh, Buffett was saying on Friday, he sold, I think it was 30% of his IBM stake. And he was saying, look, Apple, Google, Amazon are killing IBM. Bill Gates and uh, I think Stanley Drunkenmiller were telling me when I made this investment that it was going to go poorly, but I didn't listen to them. Uh, Really laughing the praises. What do you think about that? I think Apple really clarifies what Buffett means about not getting tech. I think that it is only mildly modest. I don't think it ever meant that he was cognitively incapable of understanding it. I mean, he was really well situated in understanding Google from Geico ads, understanding Microsoft from mm. Bill Gates. Mm. He has almost inside information. I don't mean that in a legal or an ethical way, but just through his operating companies in so so many different companies. Um, but I think he just says in his mind, they are unanalyzable by his standard of having a deep understanding of where they'd probably be in 10 years. That's an incredibly high standard. I think when Warren Buffett talks about something he doesn't understand, I think if you pushed him, he would probably admit that those companies are not understandable by his standards. Uh, And then 
something breaks through every once in a while. I think Apple breaks through as uh, a uh, consumer company, not the tech side of it. And he has this mental model, you really can catch him on, where he's basically saying, based on what we know now, it's very past and present tense oriented, not future tense oriented, in terms of just we can grind forward a future where they have this connection with their customers and it'll probably work. And if it goes better than that, great. Uh, I think by that standard, he feels like at this point, Google and certainly Amazon have kind of passed him by uh, on the margin. But he looks back and uh, it was interesting to hear him talk about that. But I, I just think that he wants to pick something for a candidate for a very long term investment that's harder in tech but not necessarily harder for him. Yeah, and, and I thought it was really interesting. I, I think it was Charlie who said Warren was talking all about the Apple investment, and Charlie was like, look at the Apple investment. Like, good for you, Warren. Like, way to uh, adopt, adapt and invest in Apple. Like, the Apple investment shows that we we can still learn, we can still grow. I, I just thought all of that was very interesting. Uh, the other piece I thought was interesting was the dividend discussion. Yes. Look, uh, he's He's been clear that at some point in the future, you know, at some point, Berkshire will not be able to reinvest all of its earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was the first time I've ever heard him say he opened the door to, hey, we might pay a dividend while I'm still alive in the next couple of years. Hey, uh, I think the, a direct quote was, it would be more fun if the phone would ring, if we could put cash to work and buy big businesses. And he said, look, if it can't happen in the next few years, I'll pay a dividend. I'll buy back share or something like that. Go ahead. I think the uh, I, I thought it felt a little bit toppy from the overall market that they, they are unable to find something. But on the flip side, you know, there were several kind of references to private equity putting pressure uh, in terms of competitive pressure on finding good opportunities. Uh, I think that he mentioned at one point a number, I think he talked about, you know, he wasn't just going to come back in a few years and say, well, we're now up to $150 billion, but he's just going to get it raised and raised and raised. Um, uh, since he, he is very savvy and sensitive on taxes, I think you could also look at uh, uh, raising slightly the amount the, the 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 amount that they would buy back relative to book value, although they're a bit above that, I don't think that would work. I think the dividend would be a little bit more uh, sustainable. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, and I think it really was more than anything a, a shout out to potential targets that he would like to find something. I bet he'll find something in the next few years, though. And, and speaking of taxes, I thought one thing he did say was they said we are planning for a lower tax rate. Yep. Uh, he mentioned, look, if we've got something with corporate loss with. Uh, capital losses right now we're looking to sell stuff because we think taxes are going to be lower in the future and we think it makes more sense to get a capital loss now than it would next year so they're kind of uh putting a little more pressure on selling losers which uh, you know i thought it was interesting he was against donald trump going forward but he clearly thinks trump has a shot to pass corporate tax reform if he's saying out loud we're selling stuff at a loss to generate corporate losses yep uh, perfect. Anything else you want to, any kind of last takeaways from the annual meeting or do you want to move on sure. to the, go ahead. Just uh, last two little thoughts that I had. One was um, I thought that Buffett tipped his hand a little bit on a topic I would kind of put generally as uh, doing his dirty work and not ethically or unsavory, but just unsavory to Buffett. He was very protective of 3G saying that what they do isn't wrong. It's different than what he likes to do in terms of improving corporate efficiency. I thought that I was neutral to maybe positive about him doing something with them. They came back very shortly thereafter talking about how they don't want to do hostile deals. So they were sounding more like him. He was sounding more like them. They are specialized, but specialized in ways that are comfortable with each other. Also, I 
believe, and I got this slightly indirectly, that Tracy Cool has been very busy. Uh, Todd and Ted said, oh, everybody likes to have uh, meals together. And they looked at each other and said, well, when Tracy's in town, makes me think she's out in the field meeting with the operating companies at the same time where there's been lots of turnover of heads of Berkshire operating companies. Mm -hmm. Not people that Buffett would fire other than for ethical cause, but people who I think heads that she would crack a little bit more aggressively and he would let her. Yeah, so, and if I'm remembering correctly, in his annual letter, I think we commented it was, uh, he, you know, he likes to praise by name and criticize vaguely. Yes. And his annual letter, if I'm remembering correctly, he did not mention Tracy once in his annual letter. And you and I kind of picks up on like, like oh, whoa, that that's different. He's been uh, really praising her by name. But it, it, the past couple weeks, it does seem like, as you said, Ted and Todd gave an interview where they were like, hey, uh, if Tracy's in town, us two, Warren and Tracy will always will grab lunch every Monday. So mm-hmm. it does seem like she she's still kind of, she's still around there, very busy behind the scenes. And I know a lot of people think uh, you know if Warren dies in the next five years, uh, Ajit Jane will be the next CEO. And if it's after that, Tracy might be the most likely candidate to be the next CEO. With uh, I believe Matt Rose, the CEO of uh, the railroad, also in the mix. But yeah, I, I certainly thought that was interesting. And along the lines of Warren's death, he also said, look. Look, I think if I die, the stock will be up tomorrow, which I I would guess otherwise. But, you know, I, we'll see. I think he was being modest. Yeah. Um, uh, last thought for me is I would reiterate my prediction and preference for Ajit uh, uh, coming out of the last quarter. And if any of the people who own the 4,354 shares who voted against Warren Buffett for director of, of Berkshire Hathaway in their last filing wants to email us and explain that vote, I would be curious to hear who they are. <laughs> it would be interesting. I would guess it's uh, you know political, some type of political activist buying the shares, though at 100, 200 thousand bucks a share it's uh that's an expensive political vote worst activist uh target (laughs) opportunity out there right now okay moving on so let's go to the wall street journal article how a hedge fund ace chased silicon valley riches and embarrassed himself this was an article i think it was last thursday or friday in the wall street journal and as you you told me before we started taping you read it and you're like oh i thought we're gonna podcast on it 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 is just a sensational article you know i I would encourage everyone to go read it so you can understand what we're talking about but basically it describes a hedge a hedge fund manager who is descended from uh I think the second our second president yeah he's he's descended from our second president uh he builds up this great track record investing in financial stocks uh then after the financial crisis he sees all this looming regulation for financial stocks and he decides to go all in on all of these startups particularly financial type startups online lenders all, all online alternative lenders and it ends up uh, with him taking massive write-offs on those things. But there's there's just so much more to this story. So, Chris, I'll turn it over to you to kind of uh, hit the high points. Well, it was funny because I read this article and we had not coordinated earlier, but I thought this is what Andrew's going to pick to run a podcast on. Um, I think that it uh, there's a lot of different directions to go. Let me just pick at a couple thoughts. My first is this is a cautionary story about one circle of competency. I love investing in financial stocks at the right price, but it demands a particular skill set understanding startups where he moved from there is just a completely different uh, a job to do uh, and just in a couple of ways in financial stocks a lot of the key problems to solve are matters of information and judgment uh, with startups a lot's also relational um, you can buy or sell whatever bank stock you want but good access to the best startups can be tricky and not evenly distributed yep. friends that I know in Silicon Valley and who invest around there whenever I see some public or semi-public 
vehicle for buying in them. They, in every case, when I've gone to very high caliber uh, angel investors and uh, VC firms, they said, oh, everyone you've brought me that I, I just mentioned to them casually is a bad idea and a bad picked over opportunity long after they have seen something and passed. It's the leftovers. No, I, I think that's great. So look, every VC has come to realize like money is not the key to being a venture capitalist. The key to being a venture capitalist is you invest in a, you're investing in the person, not mm-hmm. the idea, right? Like look at Twitter. Twitter was originally a podcast service, I believe. And it evolved in Twitter. You were really betting on Jack Dorsey and the Twitter team, yep. not the, the original product. So it's about being able to evaluate the product it's about being able to give someone money, but then help them kind of expand their connections. That's what most VCs do nowadays. And then it's also being able to structure the deal correctly. And, you know, you start reading this article and it mentions uh, he's investing in common stock where every other VC uh, generally gets preferred stock that gives them specific downsides. He doesn't ask for board seats where every other VC asks for board seats in all these investments. And if you're experienced and when you're reading this, you you start reading these things and all the red flags start going up and you're like, uh-oh. The, well, the title of the article kind of gave it away. But you're like, uh-oh, this is not going to end well for this guy. Go ahead. The board seat one was that just jumped off the page at me. I would say that this type of investing probably, almost certainly, requires constant intervention. Uh, again, people who I speak with in this industry, largely for data points as stocks, nudge into my direction and I want to understand the background. The relationship between being capital, a board member, and an employee, I sometimes almost can't tell the difference. You yeah. know, they're there constantly. They're intervening. They're meeting. They're doing stuff. They seem like they work at their investments. This is not a plug-and-play one-time you buy the common stock and disappear. It's just not how it mm-hmm. works. And, and the, you know, it, it reminds me, so he says 2008-2009, all Dodd-Frank comes online and he says, oh, these banks are the banks that I've made so much money on, they're going to get killed because of this, all this regulation. I need to invest in online alternative lenders who are going to be more nimble. And to me, it reminds me of something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, letting kind of your political views where, look, it doesn't mention his political views, but I don't think it's a long guess to guess that he thinks, you know, deregulation is good. Uh, the government getting involved in things is bad. Uh, the the financial crisis bailouts were probably bad in his eyes. I don't think it's a stretch to say, hey, he might have let his political views cloud and sway his investment views, which going back to Warren Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett supported Hillary, but he's adjusting for lower taxes because he thinks uh, Donald Trump's agenda is likely to get passed. So he's not letting what he would have preferred cloud how he's investing. In this case, I think the guy kind of did. In my in my uh, case, I believe that there's also a consistency between saying there is uh, reason to be cautious about overregulation and government intervention, but also to say it can work out great for this set of owners and managers of institutions that can pass on cost to customers, that can keep out comp- competition. In many cases, the regulation since the financial crisis have been a bonanza for these institutions. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot more to this article. There's a part where he he thinks a uh, a investment might be insolvent, but he marks it up anyway before year end. We, we won't dive into that. Clearly, there are regulatory issues there. Chris, I want to dive into the two most important, most serious, most interesting pieces of this. Uh, he has a he has a pet, 
a mini potbelly pig yeah. that he takes on flights and walks to his apartment. How awesome is having a mini potbelly pig? And can Elizabeth expect you to have a mini potbelly pig at the house in the next month? I, I love animals. I, th- I think there was a line in uh, Wall Street, uh, the thing about wasps is they hate people and love animals. I certainly am on the loving animal side of that, at least. Uh, I, I, my father, for some time, had a quadamundi, a miniature anteater named Zach. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So I love animals. I love normal animals, horses and dogs especially. I love weird animals. I thought this was really cool. Uh, well, one thing about this though is um success plus quirks make the quirks look great people love the quirks if you're making people money and they walk into your office and you are lucrative and quirky the quirks just add to the fun but if you're losing the money and in the last couple years he's had have not been the most horrible things in the world net of the money he's made them in the past and in this year but still there's there's kind of a a greater desire for uniformity. I, I think the pig would be more popular if he was up. The, but the mini potbelly pig, and the article goes in. He gets uh, he gets it labeled a therapeutic a animal, so he, he can get it on flights and in his apartment yeah. building. He walks around on a leash. Uh, and you know there are some scandalous pieces to this article too. It mentions that he mar- he divorces his wife and marries his first cousin. Yeah. There's even a, uh, a a crazy party that features strippers in neon paint. Uh, so I, I don't know if you want to comment on any of the more uh, risque pieces of the article, or if we should just turn readers over to the article for that. Just make sure you're making the money, and then you can do whatever else you want, except for marrying your first cousin. You don't marry. Don't want to do don't, that. Public service announcement: This podcast is brought to you by not marrying your first cousin uh don't do that all right uh so why don't we wrap it up there chris i I think that's all the time we have for today just before we hit our disclosures a quick reminder if you like this podcast the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend and to get them to start listening uh disclosures chris i think we're long just a little bit of berkshire and i think that's our only we're long berkshire and we are have we are not long our first cousins and that's it i I like my first cousins but i'm not gonna marry them uh (laughs) long berkshire since forever until forever perfect talk to you guys soon